This sermon, Christ's Agony in the Garden, was preached by Brett Overstreet on April 10th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. You know, I have wondered this week, as I prepared, as we head into Friday, as we head into Sunday, with all that we have to celebrate, how much thought do we give to the night before all of these events would unfold? This morning, we turn our attention not to the grave, not to Golgotha, but to the garden. This morning, we are going to look at Jesus not on the cross, not in the tomb, but in the garden. Just hours before he would give his life on the cross. In church, it is an unfamiliar scene, one unlike we have ever encountered in the Gospels. I want to, before we read the text, uh, read what C.J. Mahaney writes about the garden in his book. It's a great book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. He writes, when we look at Jesus in the pages of the unfolding Gospels, allowing ourselves to walk closely alongside him through those three exciting years of ministry, words like authoritative, assured, and fearless truly describe him. He's unfailingly steady and controlled. But there comes a moment as we follow him into a place called Gethsemane when all is radically changed. Suddenly, we encounter a Savior we're unfamiliar with. What we observe is foreign and frightening. Church, will you stand with me as we read from the Word of God? Gospel of Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Church, you may be seated. Our task this morning... Simple, whether this is the first time you've read this or you have encountered Christ in the garden many times, our task is to consider what our Savior embraced the night before his death, to go into Friday and Sunday marveling at the wonders of the garden. And believe me, I I am well aware of my inadequacy for the task, and so I have found comfort in the wisdom of Charles Spurgeon who writes this, since it would not be possible for any believer however experienced, to know for himself all that our Lord endured in mental suffering and hellish malice, it is clearly beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden. Church, the same is true for us. Jesus must give each of us access to the wonders of what took place that evening. I can only invite you to enter the garden with me and consider what our Savior embraced. If you would, pray with me. 
Well, Lord, we have sung, we have proclaimed with our voices this morning all that you have done. Lord, I can't wait to, to go into Friday and Sunday and, and have a magnifying glass put toward the cross, toward the resurrection. Lord, thank you that we, we can celebrate not just that those events took place, but, but the transforming power they have brought to our lives. But Lord, we do pray this morning that you would fill us with your spirit. You must be the one to give us access to the wonders of Gethsemane. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would do this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, I have two points for us. The first is an unfamiliar scene. The second, an unimaginable cup. And I want to begin by bringing us into this scene because we're taking a break from our series and we're being dropped into the middle of Luke 22. And our text begins in verse 39 where we see Jesus and his disciples leaving the upper room where they have just shared the Passover meal together. And so to put this in perspective, if you think about this week, if Christ died on Friday and was risen on Sunday, that puts our text unfolding Thursday night, the eve before his crucifixion. And it was an intimate scene between Christ and his disciples. I was thinking this week, I'm sure there was so much laughter and fellowship among them as they ate. But if you remember, this was no ordinary Passover meal. It, it was an eventful evening, wasn't it? This is, of course, where Jesus himself institutes the Lord's Supper and commands his disciples to to, to continue the sacrament of communion, which we took part in this morning. It's later this evening that, that Jesus would reveal Peter would deny him three times. And of course, who could forget that, that this is when Jesus reveals he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. So much happens leading up to verse 39 where we start this morning, but it is a reminder that heading into the rest of this week, we are witnessing the final days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And now we find Jesus in verse 39 going with his disciples to a nearby place called the Mount of Olives. And just to help you, this place was located to the east of Jerusalem, walking distance. It, it apparently had an incredible view of the temple. It would have been an amazing place to go. And apparently it was a familiar location for them. Our text says it was Jesus' custom to go there. Luke records earlier in chapter 21 that, that he would go to this place each evening. You know, I, I, when I wake up in the morning, I have a place in my house. I like to go and pray and read my Bible. Well, apparently this was one of Jesus' favorite places to go. When Judas would betray him, he knew exactly where he would be. And so if you think about it, where we're at this morning, this is holy ground, isn't it? I mean, think about what took place here. The Son of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, coming here, I mean, forget my den, right? The, the Son of God coming to this place to pray each evening and commune with his Father. Jesus spent so many hours praying here. I, I had some fun this week just thinking, man, I, I'm sure he prayed for his disciples, for, for humility, for Peter. I'm sure he prayed that, that Andrew would have boldness to carry the good news. I'm sure he prayed for his dear mother, Mary. I'm sure he prayed for those he encountered on the way to Jerusalem, 
I'm sure he prayed for strength for his own mission. But church, in many ways, we are left to wonder what Jesus prayed for on those cool nights in the garden. But it's clear that this this was not an attempt to escape Judas, was it? No, this was Jesus going where he always went to commune with his father. And so Jesus comes to this familiar place with his disciples, minus Judas, of course. And then in verse 41, look at it with me. We read that Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. And I want to just take a moment and, and make note of that word, withdrew. We might read that in the English and miss the effect that Luke wants us to feel from that word. In the original Greek, that word withdrew carried a, uh, a compulsory sense of being pulled away or drawn away. The, the best way I could think about it is maybe you've been with somebody or a group of people and, and you're struggling inside and you're getting emotional and, and you just have to remove yourself into the other room. I think we can identify with that. It falls short, but, but that's the sense we're supposed to get here when we read verse 41. If you go read the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, it's at this point where Jesus himself says his soul is sorrowful even unto death. There is something going on here. In other words, Jesus is not simply heading into the other room to pray. No, what we are about to see unfold is is pulling him away, even bringing him to the precipice of death, according to his own words. And it is this time, unlike any of the other evenings where Jesus would retreat to this spot and pray, and we're left to wonder, we get a glimpse of what takes place. We get to listen closely and hear the words that Jesus prays. Luke 22, 39 through 46 is an intimate window for us, church, into the night before Jesus would give his life on the cross, and we encounter Jesus like we have never seen him before. Look at verse 42 with me. And hear the cry of Jesus. He prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prays this over again and over again. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Both Matthew and Mark record Jesus prayed this prayer three times. We're going to look more closely at the prayer in just a moment, but, but let's consider this scene even further. Luke tells us that at this point, Jesus is no longer standing, which would have been the normal posture of prayer in Judaism. He's kneeling down. In fact, other gospel accounts like Matthew tells us he's, he's kneeling face down. And so at this point, Jesus is lying face down in the ground, praying fervently. And Luke tells us it it, it intensifies even more. Look at verse 44. We see Jesus is in agony. That that word helps us get a sense of what is really going on here. We aren't supposed to read that and come away thinking Jesus is simply sorrowful or, or humbling himself by kneeling down or just experiencing physical trauma. No, at the root of that word agony, there's a sense of struggle, struggle, and striving. And here in this context, it is meant to show us that this is far more than a physical experience for Jesus in the garden. There is a mental and spiritual anguish that takes place here. 
Here's how Jonathan Edwards explains the meaning of this word. He says this, It implies no common degree of sorrow, but such extreme distress that his nature had a most violent conflict with it, as a man that wrestles with all his might with a strong man. He calls it a most violent conflict in his nature. Think about that. Think about that for a moment. Luke wants us to understand not just how in- intense this moment was physically, but how real, how agonizing this was for Christ spiritually, mentally. I mean, if you keep reading, so intense is this conflict that his inner struggle manifests itself in even more physical trauma. Look again at verse 44. As Jesus prays these words over and over again, we read his sweat becomes like drops of blood. And listen, there's, there's some debate on if, if Luke is being metaphorical, if he's being literal here. I, I, I personally believe that, that this was so intense, Jesus was, was sweating blood. There's a rare medical condition where such extreme anguish and physical stress causes your capillary blood vessels to, to burst and mix with sweat, and the end result is you drip you sweat blood. There's accounts of this happening to men on the battlefield in history. But whether you think this is metaphorical or literal, the point Luke is making cannot be denied. Jesus' inner struggle, his agony was so great that it manifests itself in this great physical trauma. And if that wasn't enough. The image of our Savior face down in the ground in a puddle of his own blood and on the night of his betrayal, his closest friends, those who walked with him are right over there and they're sleeping. Christ is all alone. Luke wants us to feel the depths of the agony and suffering of Jesus in the garden. If you notice, he is the only gospel writer to record that an angel comes down from heaven to strengthen him. So great was the agony in the garden that Jesus is strengthened by a creature he created. What we are witnessing is the eternal Son of God face down in anguish, fervently praying to his Father with blood dripping from his pores. It is a foreign and frightening scene. It is an unfamiliar scene. And before we move on, let's take a moment and acknowledge something we see clearly in this text. Christ's humanity is on full display, isn't it? It is easy when we read texts like Luke 22 to forget that Jesus, though fully God, was fully human. And it is a reminder that that Jesus is not face down in a puddle of his own blood for drama's sake. He does not pray this prayer over and over three times to build suspense for the big crescendo like a Hollywood movie. Now, Hebrews 2.17 says he had to become, he had to be made like us in every way. 
And he was, except he did not sin. So that means this, this was very real for Jesus. What he is experiencing in the garden was very real. Don't, don't make the mistake this morning of thinking that just because he was the son of God, son of God, somehow all of this is muted for him. Somehow all of this was, was easier for him to endure. Now, when we look at this unfamiliar scene, we are reminded the word became flesh, became like us. Church, we must ask ourselves, what could cause this unfamiliar scene? What could cause the eternal Son of God such physical and spiritual agony that a heavenly host is sent down to strengthen him? What could cause the one who cast out demons, who healed the sick, who even raised the dead to life at the command of his voice to be thrown to the ground. What could throw face down in the mud the one who would stand boldly before Pilate and face accusation after false accusation? You may think that, that we find Jesus in this scene because he knew that in just a few short hours he would be brutally beaten. He would be crucified in a death so unimaginably painful. But it's not what Luke records, is it? No, Jesus is not praying that he would be spared a bloody death. He knew he was born to die. How many times did he tell his disciples this? The thought of physical death could not have led to the great anguish of our Savior like this. No, Jesus himself tells us in verse 42. Look at it again with me. The cause of his great agony and fervent prayer is the cup. What is this unimaginable cup that has caused this unfamiliar scene of our Savior face down in agony? Jesus is using the image of a cup in his prayer because it was a familiar image used throughout the Old Testament. And it essentially referred to somebody's portion, whether, whether positive or negative. But it most commonly referred to the judgment of God. Church, I have spent time this week thinking, how in the world do I try and explain this to you? I don't think I can. And so I am going to let Scripture do this for us. I encourage you to go to these texts sometime this week. Here's what Scripture says about this cup. Isaiah 51 says, It is the cup of staggering, the cup of trembling. Psalm 75 calls it a well-mixed cup of foaming wine. Psalm 11 calls it a cup of fire and sulfur and scorching wind. Ezekiel 23 calls it a cup of horror and desolation. All of these church are references to God's wrath being poured out in judgment. And so in other words, in the garden, Jesus is, is staring into the cup of God's white hot wrath 
And it is so violently terrifying that it throws him to the ground in agonizing distress. One commentator calls it the bitter brew of the judgment of God. We need to be reminded this morning, even though the world we live in may live in denial of it, the truth is this. The wrath of God is real. And this this bitter brew of God's wrath is boiling over and dripping for one reason and one reason only. Because God is holy and he hates sin. You don't have to read your Bible very long to see that God will not, he cannot tolerate sin. His holiness demands that he pour out his judgment and punish sin. And while no words could describe the depths of his wrath, these Old Testament verses we just read give us a sense of how serious his wrath is against sin. This is the cup, the unimaginable cup that Jesus stares into in the garden. It's terrifying. It is merciless. It is seething. Church, the undeniable reality is that this cup that Jesus stares into is our cup. This cup is reserved for sinners like you and I. Every drop in this cup of horror and desolation is the just and righteous response of a holy God to my sin, to your sin. There is no escaping this reality. Scripture teaches us from the moment we are conceived in the womb, we are sinful, deserving of the wrath of God. And so for all of the differences in this room, we have one thing in common this morning. We are sinners. And our sin doesn't just deserve, it demands the wrath of God. So let us be abundantly clear about one thing this morning. Christ is staring into a cup that he did not deserve to drink. We deserve to drink this cup. Scripture tells us plainly Christ was sinless. But it also tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made, that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So if you are sitting there asking yourself, why is Jesus in such great agony in the garden? It is the right question this morning, church. And John Calvin gives us the answer. He says this, it is because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It was our sins. The burden of which he had assumed that pressed him down with their enormous mass 
and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. This is why our Savior lies prostrate on the ground, bleeding through his pores in great anguish. He is coming face to face with the reality that he must drink this cup that our sin, not his, has brewed. The righteous Son of God who knew no sin, who had spent all of eternity past in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit, now stares into the cup of God's wrath, not as sinless Son, but as sin-bearer. As sin-bearer for you and I. And this weight, far too great for us to bear, will be laid upon his shoulders laid upon the shoulders of the only sinless, righteous man. Make no mistake this morning, church. Christ, Christ does not drink the cup in the garden. He will drink this cup on the cross as our sinless substitute as we are going to see on Friday, but as he stares into the cup of God's wrath, he is face to face with the reality that the Father has sent him to be the sin bearer for you and I. And that will take him from Gethsemane to Golgotha, where he will drink every last drop of this cup. It's so hard for me not to get ahead of myself. I encourage you come on Friday, come on Sunday. Come Friday to see what the Lord would do when he exhausted this cup. But today, today in the garden, so great is the weight of our sin. So hellish is the wrath it demands that it causes the eternal Son of God in real agony and distress to pray to his Father, if it is your will, remove this cup. In other words, let there be another way. Hear, hear the cry of Jesus, church. He's not doing this for drama's sake. No, he is pleading with his Father. Anything. Anything but this cup. Church, pause for a moment and consider how consequential for us are the next words out of Christ's mouth. He had every right to say, I'm not drinking this cup. I don't deserve this. Mark, this is your sin. Zach, this is your cup. You drink it. This is Brett's sin. This is the result of his sin. You make him drink it. Oh, but praise God. Forever. That that is not what Jesus says, is it? 
No, he says, look at the text with me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Jesus is willingly choosing to do what the Father has willed. He willingly submits to become the sin bearer for us. He willingly embraces this unimaginable cup that you and I deserve. No matter the cost. No matter the suffering it was about to bring him. No matter how how terrifying this cup of staggering would be. No matter that he's innocent. No matter that this, this cup is ours to drink. Church, here in the garden, Christ says to the Father, I will drink their cup. I will drink it dry. I will bear their sin. I will be treated as if every single one of their sins, no matter how small or great or hidden or public, I committed myself. Condemn me. Even though I am sinless, I will endure your wrath against their sin. He says, Father, I will do this for your glory and for their salvation. And church, he would do exactly that. In just a few moments, Judas would arrive to hand Jesus over for 30 coins. Over the course of the next 24 hours, Jesus would be stripped naked and mocked spit upon and laughed at. He would be denied by his, one of his closest friends, Peter. He would be put on trial, falsely accused, beaten nearly to the point of death, and then hung on a criminal's cross in a death so humiliating and painful we can't even imagine. And yet none of the physical suffering that he would endure would compare to what he would experience when he would drink our cup on the cross. The garden points us Forward, church. It points us forward to that moment when Christ would endure the unmitigated fury of the wrath of God for our sin. But, but, but not some, not just part, but every last drop of the bitter brew. It's hard to get, not get ahead of myself, but church, he would exhaust the cup. He would drink and drink and drink until the very last dregs of the cup were gone. And so do you know what that means? That means the cup is empty. The cup is empty. There is not a drop left for you and I. Even though it was not his to drink, it was ours. And yet he would lovingly and willingly drink it. 
Donald McLeod writes this. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people. It's not that for their sake he faced death without fear. but For their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew. Terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. Brothers and sisters, may you find great comfort this morning and see the unrelenting love of your Savior in the final words of his prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. If you're struggling this morning or or perhaps you struggle, could Christ really love me with, with all my sin? with all my past, with my history of mistakes, and could he really love me? The garden reminds us he knew about it all, and yet he embraced this cup for you and I. Church, here's the point that we must see when we look at Christ's agony in the garden. In the garden, Christ embraces our cup so that we might drink of a new cup. Jesus embraced the cup of God's unmitigated wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of his steadfast love and faithfulness, the cup of his goodness and eternal favor that we sung of this morning, that we might drink of the cup of his eternal blessings. Oh, that we would drink of his mercies that are new each morning and his grace that is sufficient for you each and every day. He embraced the cup that we deserved so that we might drink and drink and drink and drink the cup of his grace and love each and every day so that we might join with the psalmist who says in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. you live in the goodness of this reality? Do you live aware, grateful, amazed that the cup you drink is the cup of God's love and blessing? Ephesians 1 tells us God has blessed us in every, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you live each day not just aware but grateful? satisfied in the reality that the cup you deserve to drink is God's unmitigated wrath. And yet the cup you drink is full of his eternal favor. When we talk about preaching the gospel to yourself, rehearsing the gospel, this is what we mean. Remind yourself often of this reality for the good of your own soul. Remind yourself often for the right perspective in trials. Listen, if you are here this morning and and maybe you don't feel like you are living, you feel like you are enduring. My prayer for you is that you would let this reality wash over you. It, 
It won't change what you are going through, but it will give you the right perspective to see what Christ embraced and endured for you. Remind yourself often in the midst of battling sin and temptation this week as I prepared and and I was tempted to give in to my anger and sin. I was just reminded. I gave in it. That caused the bitter brew. Most importantly, remind yourself of this reality often so that your life will be lived for the glory of Jesus. Church, how how can we not submit our lives to the one who submitted his to the Father's will and embrace this cup for us? Because Christ embraced our cup in the garden and drank it full on the cross, we now drink fully and freely from a new cup the unimaginable cup of God's love. Ask yourself this question this week. Where would I be if the Father had granted Jesus' request? What if you and I had to drink this cup? you are in Christ this morning, simply allow that thought to to fill you with gratitude and worship for all that Christ has done for you. Rejoice and give God the glory for his amazing grace. But as we close, I'm aware that there may be some here or watching online who, who, whether you know it or not, you are still staring into the cup of God's wrath. If you are here today, unrepentant of your sin, maybe showing up to church week in and week out, but living for yourself, and you have not put your faith and hope in Christ Jesus, this cup is yours to drink. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you hear nothing else this morning, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Christ drank the cup that your sins deserved so that you could repent of your sin and live for his glory and drink freely of his mercy and forgiveness. If you are still living for this world, then do not leave here without talking to somebody, without crying out to God for his mercy and his forgiveness. He will give it to you freely. Church, grace is offered to us freely. But as we're reminded in the garden, it came at great cost to Christ. Come on Friday and see where Christ would no longer look forward to this cup, but he would drink it. As we leave here, let our application simply be this. As we head into this weekend where we will celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday, consider the garden.
Consider what Christ embraced for you. Consider the unimaginable cup he drank. Consider the undeserved cup.